This is On Script, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on Scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. Anyone who is not crazy readily acknowledges that Jesus of Nazareth was a real flesh-and-blood historical person that lived some 2,000 years ago. The ultimate question, the question that has divided history, is whether or not this Jesus was at the same time God. Christian theologians have been eager to affirm that yes, Jesus the human was God. But at the same time, this affirmation forces us to rethink what we mean and what the ancients meant when we use the terms God and human as these words are forced to assume new content. This is Matthew Bates, and I'm your host for On Script. Today we are speaking with Crispin Fletcher Lewis about his excitingly bold new book, Jesus Monotheism, published by Cascade Books and simultaneously available for digital purchase on Wymanity.com. Welcome to On Script, Crispin. Hi, Matt. Good to be with you. Dr. Crispin Fletcher Lewis studied at Keble College, Oxford, under biblical studies luminaries such as E.P. Sanders, N.T. Wright, and Christopher Rowland. He has taught in the theology and religious studies departments of King's College, Durham University, and Nottingham University. He was also resident theologian at St. Mary's Bryanston Square, a church in central London. Now, Crispin, this doesn't really have anything to do with the book, but I I wanted to do just a few more preliminaries with you, as this is something that actually really interested me as I was reading through your bio. Um, And that's that you were instrumental in founding Westminster Theological Center. And this is actually where, uh, as you well know, my on-script co-host, Matt Lynch, uh, is in fact a dean and teaches Old Testament. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about that, what led you to found that or to be involved in the founding of that. Uh, and uh, and how does that uh, how does that impacted your ongoing work here for, uh, in, in terms of theology uh, hi- history of Christian origins? Uh, okay, yeah. Um, my my m- most of my experience growing up and as a young adult in the church scene in the UK has been in charismatic networks of churches. Um, that word charismatic means something specific in the UK. Perhaps doesn't mean exactly what it might mean in the US, but uh, we were all very influenced by people like um, John Wimber, um, and there wasn't really a school, a seminary, or an institution that served that that new constituency of evangelicals who who were significantly influenced by or experienced a strong strong move of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, in my young thirties, late twenties, I, I began to talk to a number of people about the possibility of setting something up. Um, and uh, one group of churches in particular, what one 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 church in particular in in central London, um, had the spark of something to to set alight what what then has has blown up has has grown to be Westminster Theological Centre. Um, I was the um, resident theologian there, um, and then quickly became the principal of the of the new centre, the new college. Um, and that was really a great opportunity to try to be seriously academic uh, and, and do all the things that I would ordinarily do in a classroom uh, where, where I had been teaching before in, in Durham University, Nottingham University. But to uh, to combine that with a more ecclesial, worship-focused, discipleship-focused culture, um, to do things in the classroom that I wouldn't have been allowed to do if I had been teaching in a purely secular institution for understandable reasons um so so you know the the the, uh, the, the theory was 
um, let's be serious academics, but let's also be serious about core Christian disciplines. Um, so, so yes, I, um, I, I was the founder of that, the spearhead of that, along with a number of uh, key people early on, and and um, then others have taken up the baton, including uh, your colleague Matt. Thanks. I think for all of us who work in more explicitly theological contexts in academia, it's always a challenge to uh, and a delight uh, to to try to figure out how to hold head and heart together. And I appreciate that the trajectory of your career. Uh, has uh, has caused you to do that uh, throughout your career, it sounds like, a number of times, and I think that's something we do see in Jesus' monotheism. Uh, and by the way, uh, Matt Lynch did say, uh, and I, I don't know if I'm quoting him directly or not, but uh, that you do, you do need to uh, to grab a coffee with him uh, sometime soon, as he okay. said. Uh, he said, uh, I think uh, I might be getting the quote exactly right here, that it was uh, ridiculous uh, that you're in the same city and you haven't managed to connect. So, uh, so you'll have to uh, correct that ridiculousness and uh, make sure you two get together. Yeah, I'd like to do that, uh, not least because he, he has worked in a similar area, of course, to, to what I'm writing about now. So um, I'm sure that'll happen soon. All right, Crispin, well, let's go on to your Jesus monotheism. And uh, how about just to set the stage for our further conversation? Um, can you give us a quick bird's eye overview of your thesis, uh, your basic aims? Yes. Um, do you mind if we kind of split this into two? Sure. Um, I, I, you, you asked me in your, in your brief, uh, in the email you sent me, to try and be brief um, on, on this question. And I don't know how, how brief I can be, um, partly because this volume that we're talking about is the first of four. Um, and I've always conceived of the four as, as a conceptual whole. Um, so would it be helpful, perhaps, if I, if I talk about the, the, the big picture of, of the argument of the four volumes um, and then drill down into to the first volume after I've done that? Perfect. Well, the, the, uh, OK, then. So the, the, the four volume thesis um, is to offer a new paradigm to describe and explain the shape and the origins of the earliest beliefs about Jesus, especially the very early belief that Jesus had a divine identity, that he was included within the identity of the one God revealed to Israel in the Old Testament, and that he was worshipped by the earliest followers in a way that was inseparable from or continuous with their worship of the one God uh, in the Jerusalem temple. So it's a book about Christology. Um, and there have been many others. Um, this this is the latest in, in a long line. Uh, the overarching thesis has, I think you could see it as a kind of two-sided two -sided coin. Um, on the one hand, it's all about Christological origins, a very a very narrowly historical uh, set of questions. Where did a belief in Jesus' deity come from? What caused that belief? On the, other, on the other hand, what I'm trying to do throughout the four volumes is uh, speak to the precise nature, character or shape of those beliefs. Um, and what they meant for early Christian practice. What kind of divine identity uh, is in the followers of Jesus's minds and hearts uh, when they worship him, when they talk about him? So on, on the origins front, um, what I will argue over the course of the four volumes is that essentially there are three factors that explain the earliest belief in Jesus' deity. Number one, that there were beliefs about God's the creator's original intention for humanity as a whole, and more specifically, the belief that an individual human messiah would have a limited kind of divine identity, that that Jesus' divine identity, belief in Jesus' divine identity didn't come from nowhere. There, there were precedents, both in the Bible and in, in his Jewish world. There's a great deal of evidence for that, although I think in much scholarship, especially recently, it's been downplayed or uh, some of it, some of it has, has been missed. 
Secondly, and, and most importantly, um, the, the key historical causative factor is Jesus' self and self-understanding. He had a kind of incarnational self-consciousness, I will argue. Um, and, and of course, if you know much about Neatism scholarship, that, that's something that no one really has argued for in, in any kind of full-blown way, though there are hints in some recent work of, of a movement towards that kind of conclusion. But for me, for me, it's at the centre of everything historically. He, he had a kind of incarnational self-consciousness. He believed that as the son, he had come from God the Father from pre-existence. And thirdly, then, the, the other key factor um, is that there was an event that we now call the resurrection. To his disciples, Jesus' death at the hands of the Jewish and Roman authorities was a denial of everything that Jesus himself claimed for himself. Um, at least initially, that's, that's the way uh, they understood his death. But then within a few days of his death, something happened that meant those same followers completely changed their view of Jesus. And um, one of the many things that happens with the resurrection, um, so the documents claim, uh, was that it confirmed for the disciples Jesus' own divine self-understanding. It was obviously a confirmation of his Messiah, Messianic self-claims, but more specifically it was a confirmation to his disciples that he was this incarnational uh, divine being that he had claimed to be. Um, so that's a bare bones summary of what I will argue on the historical origins front. Along the way, throughout the four volumes, I will also be arguing that when the earliest Christians used divine language for Jesus and when they worshipped him, uh, singing songs about him, baptising and forgiving in his name and so on, they had at the forefront of their theology two radical ideas. First, they believed that Jesus, Jesus Christ was who he was, a divine human being, because he had come from pre-existence to earth, what we have traditionally called the Incarnation. They did not believe, as many modern New Testament scholars have argued, that a belief in Jesus' divinity at the early stages and, and in many places in the New Testament was really all based on the notion that after his death, Jesus was exalted and glorified to heaven, that he became divine or that he acquired a divine status only after death, when, as his followers believed, he was enthroned at God's right hand in glory. The conceptual sense of everything was this incarnational story. Secondly, they believed um, when we're talking about the shape of, of their Christological belief, at, at the heart of it all, secondly, uh, they believe that Jesus Christ's divine identity was a case of his being a distinct divine person. There is good evidence that in the Bible and for first century Jews, I would say, that there was a notion that heavenly or divine beings could come from God to earth, but not as not in the sense of a person, a distinct divine person coming to earth with the angel of the Lord, for example. There's some kind of coming from heaven to earth, but it's not as a distinct divine person. What we have with Jesus Christ is something new. He is a distinct divine person, and eternally so, um, in, in the earliest texts about him. Um, although that word person, I, I recognise, is uh, not a word that is used in the New Testament. In the New Testament itself, it appears later on in the Church Fathers as a technical term to describe Jesus' identity, but I will argue in the four volumes that actually it's a very good word for historical reasons that not that has not have not uh, been recognised really until now. It's a very good reason. It's a very good word to describe historically what is going on in the in the New Testament texts themselves. So so that's a brief summary of the, of the whole four volumes.
I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, a very helpful summary. And uh, it certainly, I think that uh, the incarnational focus of what you're trying to do and, uh, and of Jesus's self-consciousness of, of the incarnation uh, is certainly a radical move. Um, there, uh, as you said, uh, is a neglect of that uh, motif or way of approaching these, this material. And, um, and uh, it will be a, provoca- a provocative thesis, undoubtedly. Um, yeah, and so uh, do you want to circle back to the second part of that question then and then to kind of position more specifically this volume and what you're trying to do in this first this first of the four? Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, so I, I've kind of written the whole thing backwards. Um, I started out with what will be volume three and four, um, and it was originally intended to be a, a kind of pamphlet-sized extension of a lecture I gave. Uh, and... Um, then volumes one and two have slowly been bolted on the front um, because I realized so much has been done recently in uh, this field, um, which I kind of stepped out of when I was principal of the theological center. I, I didn't ha- have the time to do all the research that I do now. Um, and, and, and in the period between 2004 and 2016, uh, there's been so much done. And I, I realized I really needed to grapple with that. And um, say some things about that before I launch my, launch my own my own perspective, my own what I call the new paradigm. So, um, the first two volumes, um, the first volume of which is out already, is is really um, a dialogue in large part with with what's been done recently. And um, the first volume, uh, I guess, does two things broadly speaking. Um, it describes a starting point. Um, and then it explains why we need to leave that starting point, in my view, um, why we need to go on a journey of discovery to, to, to something something else, to, to, a, to a new and hopefully even better place. Um, the starting point is what I call the emerging consensus, um, picking up language that other people have used to describe uh, the work of a number of leading specialists in the field, um, especially the work of Larry Hurtado and Richard Borkham, um, one, one or two others as well, uh, who've contributed in the last 10 years, 20 years, to the, to the growing consensus around a number of key propositions that um, divine Christology is very early, that it uh, emerges, that it, that it first appears in, in the Jewish environment of early Christianity, that it's not a result of a development due to non-Jewish influences, um, that divine Christology means the inclusion of Jesus in the divine identity in a very strong way. Um, that's Balcom's emphasis, Balcom's emphasis um, that there's clear worship of Jesus or what Hattado calls Christ devotion. Uh, and I provide some additional reasons to support that emerging consensus against um, a number of people who, who continue to uh, raise very serious questions, actually, um, uh, against it. Um, I, I, one thing I do in the book in the first volume is, is to um, is to say why some of the some of the objections don't really hold up and some of some of what's been written in, from a different perspective still needs to grapple with with the arguments of the emerging consensus. But then uh, I do go on the on the journey. Um, that's the other half of the book. Sorry, the first volume. Um, excuse me. Let me just turn that off. Um, I do go on uh, a journey. I, I, I make a case for us needing to go on a journey um, and I did that in two ways I, I hope I the the, the, uh, the second part of the book begins with a bit of a critique of um, 
the emerging consensus, especially the work of Hurtado and, and Borkham, um, arguing that in some ways they haven't completely explained uh, what we have in the New Testament, that uh, their own explanation of his, the historical origins of uh, the beliefs that they, they themselves describe, um, that, that historical explanation isn't as cogent as it might seem in some parts. Um, and then lastly, I go on to um, present some evidence for um, Jewish material that might actually uh, anticipate the earliest ideas about Jesus as a divine figure and the worship of him, um, that there are texts which might anticipate that those phenomena in a way which the emerging consensus hasn't really um, fully recognised. For example, with, with the story of the worship of Adam in the life of Adam and Eve and um, the much discussed uh, text, The Similitudes of Enoch, where, where it looks as though to most people, to most specialists, that you have a, a pre-Christian messianic, messianic expectation, um, which includes some kind of divine identity for the Messiah and also the, the, uh, the view that the Messiah will come from heaven and, and will rightly be worshipped when he appears. Um, so that's all kind of ground clearing and setting the scene for um, the new paradigm, um, or at least it's the first part of the setting of the scene since the, since the second volume will also um, lay some more groundwork for the new paradigm, which will then be properly laid out in volumes three and four. So obviously um, your book involves this pretty intense dialogue with uh, Larry Hurtado, Richard Bauckham, um, and... Um, you know, as you mentioned, some of this is ground clearing then, and Hurtado has argued that you know, post-resurrection religious experiences, particularly visions, stand at the beginning of the worship of Jesus, um, the worship of Jesus as God. Uh, what do you think the largest deficiency there is, as, as part of what you're doing is trying to clear the way and pointing out some of these deficiencies? If you were to hone in on it, uh, what do you think the largest deficiency with Hurtado's uh, religious experiences approach is? Yeah, well, well perhaps I should, before I... Um directly answer that question, I, I think I should say that, you know, Hurtado's basic point that we should take seriously the role of religious experience and uh, including experiences that today you might label charismatic or Pentecostal, um, it is a good, really important point to make. And, and, and in general, I think he, he has a, um, a case there that needs to be heard by New Testament scholars. Um, but on this specific issue of whether that was a factor in the origins of Christ's devotion, uh, the origins of a worship of Jesus, my problem, I guess, is um, simply that when it boils down to a careful scrutiny of, of the evidence, there isn't really any clear evidence in the texts, in, in the historical data, that they started worshipping Jesus because, as Hurtado would claim, they had a variety of powerful religious experiences, visions, prophetic encounters, uh, in which they perceived him, perceived the exalted Jesus to be enthroned in glory and that their worship of him was somehow validated by a divine voice, divine perspective in the context of those visions. Uh, they certainly had visions in, and they certainly saw, according to the book of Revelation, for example, they certainly saw the angels 
uh, and the heavenly host worshipping Jesus. But there's no evidence that those kind of experiences were the cause of the radically new phenomenon uh, that is Christ's devotion. The worship of Jesus as a, as a distinct entity, as, as a person, as I would say, um, alongside God the Father, um, all within a, a Jewish monotheistic framework. Um, Hurtado, I think, both infers too much from, from a number of texts, reads beyond them and, and constructs a, a plausible scenario, but one for which there is no evidence, but doesn't really grapple with some counter reasons to think that would have been the cause. Um, some, some, I think there was some clear evidence that Christians actually were pretty, pretty wary of putting too much store by charismatic phenomena when it came to the core doctrinal, you might say, or, or core historical set of beliefs that they held to about Jesus that they did not think of and, that, and they did not want to give too much space to those kind of spirit-led experiences in, in defining the, the, their core belief set. Um, there's clear evidence for that in a number of texts uh, I try to show. Um, but also I, I think Hurtado does not um, pay sufficient attention to, to the explanation that the texts do give for the origins of uh Christ devotion. I don't discuss this in the first volume, it'll be in the later second volume, um, but in Luke's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, John's Gospel, um, I think actually there there is a fairly clear set of claims made for why it started, what, why, why Jesus was first worshipped, and um, Hurtado doesn't really fully tell us why we can't start with that evidence. Yeah, Hurtado does seem a little reluctant to um, deal with matters of the historical Jesus um, and uh, to integrate that in. And um, I, th I think that will be a strength of your project will be to to revisit some of that. Uh, of course, I love a lot of Hurtado's work, too. I think it's tremendous. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'll be curious to see where you're moving with that. Um, now, there are obviously in terms of uh, speaking this emerging consensus, um, there are some who are refusing to emerge, right, uh, or who don't think that this emerging consensus uh, is a consensus at all. I'm thinking here of James Dunn, James McGrath. Uh, we could probably uh, put our heads together and think of a few more names, Bart Ehrman, um, J.R. Daniel Kirk probably, and his new volume that's come out. Um, what is it uh, that's preventing them from emerging, uh, do you think? And it might be a variety of things, uh, but if you were to, uh, to pinpoint a couple maybe, uh, what is it that's preventing them from joining this emerging consensus? I'm sure they all have their own individual reasons. Um, and in the first volume, I do try to show some solidarity, actually, with uh, some of the reasons that those scholars you've named and, and others, Casey, Morris Casey, for example, um, the reasons they would give to not accept the emerging consensus. I think... Um, I think, for example, it really is a big historical problem uh, if if the model of historical origins for Christ devotion and, and what I call Christological monotheism, um, what, what Tom Wright called Christological monotheism, um, it, if, we, if we go with the model that is presented by Hurtado and, and Borkham, um, 
I think I think you're straining at, at certain key points. You really are straining historical credulity to believe that there was that sudden jump from nothing, no real precedent for the worship of Jesus, no real precedent for a divine Messiah to all that we have in the New Testament and, and its earliest strata for beliefs about Jesus. It's it's really quite hard to believe um, that the disciples of Jesus would so quickly and so easily transition from a strict exclusive Jewish monotheism to a incipiently Trinitarian one. Um, so, so one of the arguments that's going to develop in the course of my my four volumes is that actually you you solve that problem you um you answer that problem you want you answer that objection from Dunn and McGrath and others um, by observing that actually uh, there is more continuity with the biblical understanding of the Messiah there is more continuity with first century Jewish expectations that means it's not such a historical jump um, it's a more it's more historically believable both that the disciples of Jesus would quickly come to the conclusions they apparently did if we follow Hurtado and Borkham and others um, and also in fact that it's it's now in in the given that what we do now know given that there are some very significant changes that, that are taking place in our understanding of first century Judaism uh, and a biblical theology. It's it's actually much more believable um, than than anyone really has recognised that Jesus himself had some kind of divine self consciousness. In a way, I I stand apart from both Hurtado on the one hand and Borkham as well on, on the one hand and the other scholars you mentioned in that they all share the common assumption. Um, that it really is historically hard to believe that a first century Jewish Messiah um, human being would believe the kind of things that John's gospel clearly believed um, that he believed about himself. Um, so so I, I kind of have, I have empathy, if you, if you like, for, for um, the, the, the non-emergers. Um, and what I'm going to try and do is, is offer them a, a way a way into the emerging consensus, which doesn't mean buying into everything that the emerging consensus offers. over what you said, if uh, as we kind of think about why uh, some of this emerging uh, uh, consensus uh, has been resisted, um, I wonder if some of it does have to do with, with Bauckham's very strong divide between creator and creature. He is uh, the, the sort of absolute divide between the two. And um, it seems like you're doing some work that might, um, might help to um, offer a model that might bridge that divide. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm glad that you um, I appreciate you saying that. I think certainly for some people, James McGrath, for example, uh, has picked up on this issue in Borkham's work. 
Um, and uh, it's one of the things that, that I criticize his model for. Um, and there are others that stand firmly alongside Borkham in, in, in insisting on that very strict distinction between the creator and the creature, um, which if you formulate it in the way that Borkham does, I, I think does create problems. I think it creates problems for um, a genuine understanding of Jesus' humanity and a genuine appreciation for um, the aims, objectives, vision and values of historical Jesus. So um, I, I guess if you're someone like, who, who, who has always put a lot of store by Jesus' humanity, by, by the importance of the historical Jesus um, and by the synoptic portrayal of Jesus, then, um, then, then there is, there is a, a tension or there, there are reasons to be um, to, to not want to, to buy a version of the emerging consensus that um, really downplays all that. So that's that's a, that's a kind of yes to your comment. Uh, good. Um, I wonder if it if it might be helpful for both for me and for our listeners if you wanted to um, delve a little bit more into your articulation of divine identity. And this is something that you did in your appendix at the end of volume one. Um, and uh, to talk about specifically then uh, the way in which your construction of divine identity might help um, think of a new mo- help offer a new model perhaps for uh, this cre- uh, this creator creature divide and how, how we might think about it in different ways. Well, uh, well, um, you, <laughs> you you jump into the, to, to some of the detail where I feel most uh, cautious in 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 the, in the first volume. I mean, we're talking about the, the append- one of the appendices or one of the um, excursuses, I think it is. Uh, where I, I fly a kite, and uh, um, I'm really waiting to see whether um, anyone thinks this this kite um, has potential to fly. Um, perhaps it's it's. I'd be interested to know what you think. For example, um, my suggestion is that Borkham and others, of course, are right that there is a clear distinction between the creator and the creature in biblical theology, and in, and in many Jewish texts, this is really clear. Um, and it's surely wrong to talk about a kind of blurring of the distinction, um, as some people have done. Um, there's, there's, there's no real blurring of a distinction in, in the primary texts. But what you do have, um, and, and this is where the Borkham model doesn't fully account for the primary data. What you do have um, are texts where divine language, God language or the adjective divine um both in Hebrew texts and, and in Greek texts, um, that, that that terminology is used quite freely um, to describe angels, to describe human beings, uh, certain specific elected, exalted, ch- carefully chosen by God human beings. Um, and uh, there's, there's lots of evidence for that. Um, there's lots of evidence, actually, to leads to the conclusion as as many as increasingly many scholars have have pointed out leading to the conclusion that there's some kind of idea in first century judaism that that you can experience theosis or apotheosis or um that that the goal of um the righteous human life is to somehow become divine in in whatever we mean by that it doesn't mean to say you become god but there's there's some kind of openness to um a a a a overcoming or a um and moving beyond a simple, neat line of distinction between the creator and the creature. So um, to explain that textual evidence, I, I wonder whether I propose in, in that excursus that um, 
what, what we really have in the primary text is, is evidence of a theology where the it's precisely the distinction between God and the creature um, that is the philosophical warrant for um, a a paradoxical simultaneous belief that God in his freedom, God being God, can do what he likes. God then in his freedom uh, on occasion will share something of his own identity uh, with with creatures that he will in, include creatures in his own distinctive identity in his own unique prerogatives uh, as as co-creators sometimes um, in such a way that actually it makes sense uh, as these Jewish texts show it makes sense for um, first century Jews to speak of this God um, having having creatures who are in some sense divine so the war actually saying what we're, what we're actually doing is we're, we're basing um, uh, our assessment of, of all that evidence which which has sometimes been used against a clear distinction between creature and creature we're, we're actually using the distinction between creature and creature to to explain that um, that textual evidence. Does that make any sense? I mean, you, you were telling me earlier that you'd recently um, read that excursus. Um, um, did did that argument make any sense to you, Matt? Yeah, it did. Um, I need to ponder it still in terms of, uh, you know, if I was to give a, a formal scholarly assessment, I'm not sure if I'm ready. I read it last night uh, and uh, I found it very, very provoking for sure. One of the things that interested me, too, was how you had sort of uh, linked that with, um, some things that go earlier in your book, um, but especially with um, ideas around uh, the original purpose of Adam as image of God, uh, and um, and of course you you, you want to tie that to um, that uh, that uh, book that is from um, at least a sort of mid antiquity um, uh, that uh, Life of Adam and Eve book that is usually dated from the fourth century. But do you want to argue that there's actually um, perhaps a strand of that that goes back into pre Christian Judaism? And uh, make make a scholarly case for that. Um, so, how does this um, maybe uh, as you're continuing to tease out your divine identity proposal, um, link it a little more to image and, and to Adam and to God's original intention for Adam for us? Uh, as I'm still trying to uh, to weigh and assess what you've done, also. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the I mean, just a little bit, bit of biography on, on my scholarly journey. Um, I was taught at Oxford uh, by several professors who were either Eastern Orthodox or um, had a strong Eastern Orthodox persuasion. And um, they introduced me to ideas about theological anthropology, which were um, which have been uh, somewhat um, foreign to, to those of us brought up in a Western theological tradition. And of course, um, one of those is, is a high view of human identity, human potential, um, and God's original purposes for humanity, um, with the image of God phrase in Genesis one being being um, at the centre of of uh, a theological system which which has that high view of human life and identity. Um, as I worked on the New Testament texts and as I worked on the Jewish material, um, trying to grapple with the historical problem of the origins of the worship of Jesus, um, it became clear to me that that, that, that there is good evidence in the pre-Christian Jewish world and in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, for something not a million miles from um, that late uh, Eastern Orthodox view of the, of the human person, of the human human vocation. Um, and um, 
I think sometimes people have assumed, therefore, that what I'm actually going to say is that um, Jesus was worshipped simply because he was a second Adam, that he was uh, maybe the perfect human being, um, or that he became a perfect human being, um, and therefore he was worshipped as such. Um, that's not actually uh, how I see things. Um, one of my argument, arguments will be that uh, Jesus has a complex identity, that he has a um, multifaceted um, identity that you might say he has a kind of multiple personality um, identity that he is that he exists on uh, or his his journey through life his his narrative his biography takes him through um, all all levels of of the the hierarchy of being um, and that he fully therefore um, embraces a human identity um, and he does that not in a way which is somehow simply a, a um, a salvific necessity, um, a step towards dying for our sins on the cross, um, as some part of some kind of transactional um, resolution of of, um, of an atonement. Um, he takes on human nature because it was always God's purpose that the human being bear his identity, bear God's identity. That, that it was always God's purpose from Genesis 1, the way I read Genesis 1 and other Old Testament texts, it was always God's purpose that human, the human being would manifest um, the divine presence. That, 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 that's what it means to be the image and likeness of God. That's, that's both functional language and also ontological language. Um, it's not just a statement about the things we do which are like God. Um, it's also about um, God's own presence in, in the human being rather than his presence in crocodiles or vulcans or um, as, as the Egyptians believed. Um, so so the, the, the total package of New Testament Christology is one which um, says that Jesus is a second Adam and, and um, the worship of him includes the worship of him as the true Adam. But that's not the sum total of it. He's worshipped as God, um, as, as a fully divine eternal person who became the one who who truly lived the human story and fulfilled the, the human story that had not yet been fulfilled, um, whose ending had been um, tragically denied in in the story of, in the life of Adam and Eve themselves, and whose story had not yet been fully lived out in, in any by, by any other human being. So um, it's a both a, both and. Um, the, the, the text that you mentioned early on uh, when you asked this question is an important text, but it doesn't explain everything. Um, Jews, I think, did believe that the true human being, um, that, that, that Adam himself, before he fell, um, was worthy of um, a kind of worship by the angelic realm, um, and that is one that 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 is included. That is that is part of what it means to worship Jesus for the earliest followers, but they are worshiping as, him as much more than that. Yeah, thank does you. That, uh, does that answer the question? Yes, very well. Um, you mentioned that you sort of were writing your four-volume project backwards, and uh, perhaps it's the case that we're working this interview backwards as I, I kind of uh, moved into your final appendix and then uh, back, back into your uh, – I want to go uh, uh, one step uh, backwards again uh, as uh, I think this, again, connects to some of the things uh, with regard to Adam and image. Uh, at least you make some connections in this direction, and this has to do with um, the Son of Man figure in First Enoch. And uh, – for your project, the Son of Man uh, is an important 
uh, piece of the puzzle, uh, because obviously this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, as he calls himself the Son of Man repeatedly, um, and um, you, you're doing something interesting in terms of trying to uh, argue that uh, the Son of Man figure, that as we find him described in Enoch, uh, is, is part of a larger package of ideas about uh, the Son of Man as a transcendent figure, uh, and instead of reducing or flattening that title of the Son of Man down to just a self-referential, I am the man, or something like that, um, it seems like you're trying to recover this emphasis on his transcendence. Um, so could you make some further connections to some of the things you just talked about with regard to image and Adam, and then moving that back to uh, this Anachic material and the Son of Man Messiah figure that we find there? The, the key to the connection between those two which I don't really supply in volume one, um, I think, uh, is priesthood and the temple, uh, where the priestly office is one that connects back to Adam, that the high priest in uh, the tabernacle, Aaron in the tabernacle in Exodus 28 onwards, is described as a Adamic figure, um, that he is he is clothed with the glory that Adam would have been clothed with um, had, had Adam not sinned. Um, the Son of Man in the similitudes of Enoch is a figure of glory, uh, identified very strongly with God's own glory. Um, the background to that, I will argue, is that um, the high priesthood is a figure both clothed in divine glory, identified with the divine glory, but also um, connected to Enoch. Um, and Enoch is is both an Adamic figure and a priestly figure. So you, you contain the, the, these ideas, these um, these various texts that I bring to the table in, in the first volume, um, have their common home, their common conceptual, theological home, their, their experiential home for first century Jews, um, in the world of the temple and uh, biblical traditions um, that many Christian readers, I guess, have uh, found hard to know how to deal with. Um, passages which um, seem uh, uh, tedious or, or um, can, can seem to have very little um, of theological value, um, all, the, all the swathes of descriptions of laws and, and rules and regulations for the tabernacle and the temple in Exodus through to Numbers. Um, that, that, that's the key. That, that those, those texts are the key to explain um, the apocalyptic literature. Um, I realise that's not a normal view of apocalyptic, but um, I think it's one which uh, is, is not hard to argue for. Uh, here's something that I uh, was just prompted in, in what you said for me and something that I've kind of pondered. Uh, but I wonder what uh, what you would think about uh, the idea of Jesus's self-consciousness as high priest. Do you see the historical Jesus as having an awareness of this? Obviously, we see uh, that motif arise in Hebrews. Uh, you get a, at least an allusion to it in Romans 8, is it 834, somewhere in there. Yeah, um, yeah. What do you think about that, about Jesus uh, and his own awareness of a high priesthood? Um, the key, a key pillar of the argument of Volume Four, will be that uh, Jesus's identity, Jesus's self-perception, um, is is inextricable from his his priestly vocation. Um, he believed that although he was of the line of Judah and the, and the house of David, 
um, and therefore by 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 family could not by rights claim the priesthood um, that he did indeed fulfill the priestly vocation uh, in so many ways um, that explains other things which have been hard to explain for us that, that the argument of much of Hebrews is really the argument of Matthew Mark and Luke um, we've just missed it um, the key figure being Melchizedek uh, the key text being Psalm 110 um, the point of which for Jesus is that here you have a passage in the Old Testament where uh, it's the only passage, in fact, in the Old Testament where you have a messianic, uh, a royal messiah, that is, um, figure also described as as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, uh, Psalm 110, verse four. So that the the point I will argue in, in in volume four, the point of Jesus' appeal to Psalm 110 at his trial is to say, um, yes, I I am the messiah. Uh, the son of the blessed. In other words, I am the royal messiah. Um, I am also the one who fulfills the vision in Psalm 110 for a figure who is both priestly and royal, a, a king who is a priest, um, which which is not allowed in the Moses laws in the in the, in the Sinai constitution that you cannot have a king who is as a priest. Um, so Jesus is going back before Sinai um, to the Melchizedek figure in much the same way that Paul goes back to Abraham uh, to make his case uh, regarding circumcision. Jesus himself goes back before Sinai to make his case for a new political religious constitution in which he is a, a, a priest, a priest king. Yes. Well, thank you. I really appreciate, you know, you giving that teaser uh, for how your your four volumes wrap up with Jesus as uh, the high priest. A very uh, interesting and uh, certainly it's a bold argument. Uh, and I think that's one of the great strengths of your book is that uh, it's innovative, maybe more innovative than anything I've read in quite some time. Some of it, I think, very convincing. Other places, well, I've got to assess. Right. Um, but uh, I certainly appreciate your throwing these questions up uh, as they're questions we need to ask. Well, thank you. Um, and um, and um, in choosing to write it as four volumes, I, I'm deliberately um, inviting critique. And um, although although the main planks of the of the edifice, the conceptual structure, are in place, I'm, I'm very uh, much in need of uh, of feedback and um, strong questioning where, where some parts of it I, I think need refining. Uh, well, we all are. That's the whole point of scholarly dialogue. But uh, it's certainly a, it's certainly a terrific book. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here, though. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Uh, we've been speaking today with Crispin Fletcher Lewis. Crispin's book, Jesus Monotheism, is especially bold and innovative. It's published in paper by Cascade Books and digitally by Wymanity. Uh, it's got its own webpage. It's available for digital download. Uh, you'll find links on our website, onscript.study. Thanks again, Crispin. Thank you. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Music